rolling. Welcome to the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez with Brad Binkley. How you doing, Brad? Staying out of the rain. Yep. Well, you're as far out of the rain, the big rain, as you need to be. Now, every single day this week, they cover the Wall Street Journal as pictures of Houston. More and more, uh, you know, horrifying, thank God it's not me, pictures of Houston because of Hurricane Harvey. That's the big story of the week. I would like to tell you about my experience Please with do. a hurricane in Houston. I lived in Texas for seven years at least, and one of those years was in Houston. So when I moved to Atlanta and people were like, oh, it's hot Atlanta, you're going to die. I was like, dude, nothing's hotter than Houston. You really can't, you could barely live there. But uh, we had, I was there when Katrina happened. So Katrina was in New Orleans and it really impacted Houston, not because of the hurricane, but because people moved out of New Orleans and permanently relocated in Houston. So there were bumper stickers, thank you, Houston, and everything. So it was top of mind for everybody, Katrina was, when I lived in Houston. Right after Katrina, I believe the next big hurricane was Rita that was supposed to hit Houston. So what they did was they they called for an evacuation of Houston. And the way Texas works is Galveston is down on the coast and it it was it was a thriving metropolis at one point, you know, 100 years ago or whenever it was, and it was devastated by a hurricane and it really never kind of got its juju back. It just never really fully recovered. But people in Galveston when there's a hurricane, they got to get out of there. And they have to go up through Houston. So when they called an evacuation of Houston for Rita, Houston's 30 miles inland, everybody just flooded the highways and the people from Galveston and stuff could not get out. And then people ran out of gas and the highways were parking lots and people died trying to get out of there. Like 100 people died. Yeah. I didn't go. I had little babies. I had three kids in diapers and I didn't go because I remembered growing up my whole life in New York, they would always say a hurricane's coming. But if you were at all inland, it just, it did not hit you. It just broke at the land. That's what it did. So I really wasn't that afraid. And I knew they can't really tell what's going on until 24 hours before it hits you anyway. I wasn't worried about it. People did completely clear out the shelves. There was nothing left in the grocery stores. It was kind of a bummer. I needed baby formula. Uh, everyone said, fill up your bathtubs with water in case you run out of water. It's like, okay, I'm never doing that because I have kids in diapers and it is much more likely they will die in the bathtub, you know, than in this hurricane. So I was up all night, the night that it was supposed to hit, feeding my baby and all that, and uh, it didn't even rain. So... Ever since then, hurricane, uh, I think Houston no longer calls evacuations because it really messes up the people on the coast. And it's, and it's, and I always knew, I mean, from before then, and then hurricanes just don't hit like that. So now here we are with this hurricane that's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous how much water is going down there. A year's worth of water in a week. So this triggers my skepticism my like red flag of my truth stars alarms go off. Uh-oh. Yes. And about to take this, us down the rabbit hole. I, I don't know. I no, I'm just I'm just thinking that maybe under you know behind that tall grass is a rabbit hole that I didn't know was there before. Because I can't 
I never really address the science stuff. So people will say, oh, there's harp, there's chemtrails, stuff like that. I really have never felt totally competent to assess what I was seeing. You can watch the YouTube videos, but how the hell do I know? You know, I really was interested in the tsunami in Fukushima and all the people who died uh, in, I guess it was Indonesia, for that that massive tsunami. Was it was it the same tsunami? I can't remember, but like 100,000 people died in a tsunami in Indonesia, if I'm not mistaken. That kind of stuff. It's crazy. And I remember trying to figure out, is there any way maybe an underground nuke or something could set something like this off. Can we do it? And people will always say that we can do it, but you look at Harvey and it's clearly unnatural and it's, or I should say it certainly makes people wonder this doesn't is not consistent with any experience I've ever had with nature. What are the possible explanations? And you get two explanations for those who think this is not natural. One is climate change, man-made climate change, incompetent. And then there's climate control. And there have been plenty of experiments with climate. So I feel like that's where where I'm I'm starting to wonder. And of course, if you ask me, I'm never going to go with the climate change thing because once you read the report from Iron Mountain, you can't believe in environmentalism as an excuse for world government or, you know what I mean? What, what environmentalism is leading to this kind of thing where it becomes, the weather is highly political that comes straight out of report from iron mountain. And I think it's more likely that they actually are trying to control it. The way that they try and shut down the conversation is so over the top that even if you've never looked into the science of it, it should make you question their intentions. I, I, I saw over and over and over again, even before this hurricane hit, they were already priming the public to accept that climate change caused it. This unprecedented rain. I've, I've heard the word unprecedented 5,000 times over the past Before couple. it even happened? Not before it happened. Before, no, yeah, before it happened. Unprecedented rains expected. This has been going on. Oh, really? Yeah, I posted a picture about it. The, just the unprecedented rain is what I did not recall hearing before. I'm sure, I, I'm sure it's true, but I just didn't catch that. They've been bringing uh, climate scientists on there. I watched something last night. It was like one in the morning. I don't even know who the person was, but they had a climate scientist on. And the whole segment – and I realize this. Every time I see a climate scientist on television, they're never actually giving us new information or helping us understand the complexities of it. They're always just insisting that the climate science is all pretty much settled and that anybody who really says otherwise – is a climate denier that doesn't need to be talking. That's all they ever talk about. They don't ever provide any real hard evidence or anything. They just try to shut up anybody who's asking any questions. So that makes me agree with your assessment that there's some sort of weather manipulation that could be going on here because we all know they can do it. Well, in the environment, I want to I want to catch that last point before it gets away. But in that report from Iron Mountain, it actually says we we don't mention any any actual plans we think might work, which is why it probably doesn't have terrorism in there. We don't mention any ideas that we think might work. We're just using this environmentalism example because we think it won't work. The reason we think it won't work is it would require total collusion across the scientific community. Wow. Oh, yeah, it says that in there, that that we think we could not get every single scientist or the majority of scientists to just lock down and never deviate from the story. And that's so 
So when you hear them talk like that, that's straight out of report from Iron Mountain also. And the reason I'm super skeptical about the climate change example or excuse explanation is not just the report from Iron Mountain, but there are people who, like James Corbett, I, I'm skeptical of everyone and everything until my position is, okay, I, I can no longer be skeptical here if there's new information, okay. But when I listen to James Corbett, it seems to me he's he is just uh, a guy with integrity trying to figure stuff out. And when he does the climate change stuff consistently, uh, it he points to the the science of it is often misleading, rewritten, you know, that what they're telling us is are the facts that are leading to this conclusion that this is what's happening. Those facts are suspect. And so when they give us this theory, when they give us this explanation, I can't help but think that if the underlying facts are BS, then, then, and, and the goal has been stated from the start that this will be used for policy purposes I can't believe their argument. So that leaves me saying, okay, where did this crazy, unprecedented, designed to be unprecedented, it's the whole highlight of it is that it's unprecedented. Where did it come from? A coincidence? It's an act of God? Absolutely unprecedented? An unprecedented act of God. An unprecedented act of God. And if you, if you, even the most cursory examination of climate experimentation, which is for sure something that, I mean, they started, I found just a, just a quickly, one quick Google search, something from the 40s, the military messing around with the weather in the 40s. So, I mean, what what is that, 70 years ago? So I don't know how to evaluate that at all, at all. But I, I find it, you know, for the first time ever, I'm seriously considering figuring out in trying to satisfy myself whether or not this stuff is is done do we have the power and do we use it yeah i want to look into that too i've read a little bit about it and you know they can do it they've been doing it in china openly for a long time oh yeah many countries do it openly that's right that's right yes yeah another, i haven't dug into it enough yeah, another aspect of this climate consensus thing is it's groupthink. People are shamed into silence. There's something called spiral of silence. It's a sociological term, and what it means is you have an opinion, a perspective on some social issue, and the majority – it seems like the majority disagrees with your perspective. And this, this happens in office places a lot too, whereas the boss will make everybody think that everybody believes one thing, but quietly everybody really believes another, and they never speak up because they fear they're in the minority. And if they speak up, they're going to be shamed, and possibly they might lose their job. And that's called the spiral of silence. So the majority – goes along or the yeah the majority goes along with a minority opinion because they fear the consequences of speaking up of expressing what they truly believe but in reality most people believe otherwise so this climate science thing has a lot of that going on the the 97 97% agreement is not people actually conducting unbiased studies one the studies are biased are funded by people with agendas two they're just relating to they're, they're saying oh so and so expert said this so if i go against so and so expert I'm going to get shamed. I'm going to ha it's going to be like that. There's a Georgia Tech professor. I think she might have lost her job because she came out and she didn't even disagree 
with a lot of their findings. She just said this 97% thing really simplifies an incredibly complex issue, and there's just a lot of things we aren't sure of, which is a, a very reasonable response. She got shamed called crazy, loses her job. and I think and, she might be controlled opposition, actually. She I might be. Who, yeah, I mean, who knows? But yeah. how's anybody going to speak up? This when, is what polling is for. Oh, yeah. polling, polling deception, polling manipulation is absolutely 100% designed to do what you're call, what I now learned from you, thank you, is called the spiral of silence. That's what it's for. And, of course, the fact that the media is completely controlled that's what the media is for. The media is not only to totally brainwash you, but also to make you think that any, because this is what they say. They actually say anyone who thinks this is crazy. I mean, it's the worst flaw. It's the worst uh, fallacy of argument. Or I should say, I can't stand at the absolute most is to dismiss or mock an argument rather than refuting it. I mean, you simply must refute the argument, no matter how to ask Flat Earth Mark. Flat Earth Mark called my show. I didn't say you're an idiot, even though people were tweeting at me to hang up on that guy. Nuh-uh. I want to hear what he has to say. Yeah, exactly. You should have heard the argument this guy made on the, like, it was, I don't know who these people were. It was like an overnight CNN show, but the climate scientist, and you could tell that he – because he said something at one point where he didn't express complete certainty that the hurricane was caused by climate scientists. He wavered momentarily, mm-hmm. and the jumped in and nudged him, was like, but it's clear that these people that are you – know, Oh, yeah, they – yes. They're going to cause a lot of danger, and the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that – like he, he like backtracked, and then the argument became – the scientific method is that we constantly question. So I wasn't saying that it's not 100% proven. I'm just saying that at, as scientists, we have to say that we're always questioning things. And these people who are saying that there's no consensus are taking advantage of the scientific method. So our, our commitment to the scientific method is our weakness because it enables climate deniers <laughs> to claim yeah. that there's not 100% consensus. But, I would like to just interject what the purpose of this kind of thing to position it this way. Let's even, if we go back to report from Iron Mountain for a minute, they, their goal was how to get people to continue to support, to consent to the hierarchy as it is without the constant threat of war. The the premise was without nuclear war, people could not, believe that we would we were actually living under the threat of war because if everybody had nukes nobody would fire the first shot which is a rational thing and that's what everybody always wanted a super weapon to end war uh now we've been told that every single solitary person who runs every other country is a complete nut job who's willing to blow up the entire earth because he's a nut job and that's why they can't have nukes instead of if they had nukes nobody would bomb them and we'd be at peace that's an idea, and it used to be an accepted idea, and that was the basis of this thing. So the question was, is there a substitute for the threat of war? And they went through a bunch of different things. That serves all the many, many purposes of this fear of war or the actual act of war, like population control is a purpose of the act of war. Is there any? Is there anything that they can replace it with? And 
and the environmental thing, some of the aspects of it that were so useful were that it would be something, especially in this case, that that we are responsible for globally, that a global only a global regulatory system could really control it. I look at this Hurricane uh, Harvey thing and think they're saying that, so for like a little libertarian moment here, normally what you don't, what you absolutely do not want is federal flood insurance. You'd never want that because what it is, is a moral hazard. That, that's and, what, before you go yeah. into that, that's what the FEMA guy, he's been on every single station and his talking point has been, we're in Texas, we're going to be getting national flood insurance going and FEMA has set up shop in Texas and we're going to be here for years to come helping Texas, helping the local resources as we talked about the uh, the Georgia, the bridge thing, the vigilant guard where the local resources are overstressed. The local resources here in Texas are overstressed. FEMA is going to be here for years helping them recover national flood insurance. Just kept drilling those points. Yeah, and flood insurance is bad because if you believe that a great example or a parallel analogy was when there was a fire department and it was volunteer, you could uh, contribute to it or not contribute to it. If you didn't contribute to it, they would not put the fire out of your house. So one time they let a guy's house burn down and and the fire department got a raft of crap about it. And they and but every single solitary person in that town said, I am never letting my fire insurance lapse ever, ever, ever. I will always pay the I mean, the fire department contribution. I'm always going to do it. You just need you save so many more lives if consequences are clear and real. So when you have national flood insurance uh, for people who already live in a house, it creates a danger to their actual physical lives. If you have a private private insurance company. Uh, that wants to insure your house on Key West. First of all, they might not even, in which case you have to be ready for a total loss. But if they are willing to, they say, okay, we're going to charge you 50% of the value of your house every year because every other year it's going to get wiped off the face of the earth. You can't afford that. You can't live there unless you can, and which you will. But but if the if the federal government comes in and says, gosh, your house got wrecked again, here's the money. Your house got wrecked again, here's the money. Oh, you're dead? You know, that's a moral hazard by not signaling insurance is a pure insurance is a perfect way to signal to you whether or not you're living a, a, the lifestyle with a risk level that is comfortable to you. So when I was going to get life insurance, I snuck a cigarette. I didn't know that they were going to take my blood. I didn't know anything about it. And they came out positive for nicotine. And my insurance went through the roof or they canceled it for a year or whatever. And I mean, in eight years or 10 years or whatever, I snuck one cigarette. That was it because I don't want to have that experience. Obviously, they take it seriously and it's a very real risk. So the flood insurance thing is a moral hazard. But now you have these people in Houston where I just told you at the beginning of the show, there's absolutely no, I, I would have had no expectation whatsoever of this kind of thing in Houston. It's unprecedented. It was way too inland. And I didn't do anything. I would not have done anything wrong by living in Houston. It was not predictable. Your own flood insurance probably wouldn't even cover a kind of total loss scenario. Who would expect your second floor to be at a total loss in the middle of Houston? I don't think it, it, it doesn't. It, the water did not cover all of Houston. But I'm just saying these people feel innocent. If it's climate change, it's totally not their fault or it's all of our fault together. And we all need to pitch in because we're all driving the cars 
and using the products that are produced by the stuff that creates this climate change. So it spreads out the fault. It spreads out, you know, it makes it a universal problem with that is completely out of your control. It's not fair. Uh, so, so when, when agenda items like these all dovetail in an event, the events uh, nine out of 10 times a false flag. But in this case, and you can figure it out as long as you, once you have that, you're open to that idea, you can figure it out. But in this case, it's, I think that this is really crossing the line. As my daughter said, she's totally skeptical of my skepticism. And she said, but mom, this time, I think you're crazy. <laughs> so, so this thinking Hurricane Harvey could be, uh, could have been made worse by the conscious effort of the powers that be. That to her was like the red line. I think mom's crazy. You should call her. You should call her like a, a climate. I don't know. Come up with some like like climate denier, but opposite. So maybe you I told you, you think it's a conspiracy of, or you think it's man made anyway. You think that this is a result of human action. Yeah. Climate change, right? Right. That's a great point. Like one, it's a, it's a result of human action either way. But if you say yeah, either incompetence, action. you know, or intentional. I have no reason. There is no reason for me to believe that it is any more climate change than it is geoengineering. You know, weather, weather can drive. I have no reason to believe that it's, it's one or the other. Like, do you I, think I it's natural? Do you think there's a good chance that this just happened? Because yeah. that's what she says. Hurricanes happen. It could just happen. Here's what I do know. I know that the philosophy of never let a crisis go to waste always applies. But this hurricane is the best thing that the left wanted. This couldn't have come at a better time for them. They liked Sandy, too. Sandy got the uh, Judas hug from Christie. Got Obama elected. This has been another theme. They're all politicizing. I know. And in Texas, what they're doing is they're going to show that Texas is a bunch of full of crap socialists, too, because when it's time for them to put their hands out, that's what this whole Trump populism thing has been all about, is taking the right and making them say, we just want ours, too. And that's not what the right was. The right used to be principled. Liberty based, but you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, when you go to Texas and you say, yeah, don't you want it now? But Texas could take care of itself. Texas has all that oil money. Texas doesn't need federal money. Texas could be a country just like California and Alaska. It could be its own country. It does not need federal money. Well, they're getting a lot of it now, but they shouldn't. That's the question that they keep asking people who are coming on after they've framed the conversation as climate change, acting as a refueling mechanism for this hurricane. This is why Texas is getting double punched by this hurricane because it just sat over the ocean and that warming climate change water refueled it and sent it back into into Houston. First time ever, right? Yeah, first time ever. Unprecedented. <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. It's a science experiment. Right. It could be a science experiment. I, I mean, It I t- could be. Yeah, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. It could be. Are you getting the type of help from the federal government that you need? They ask the victims that. They ask the people, the officials in Texas. That's the first question the media asks them every single time. You know, I got to ask you, though, like as as a, am kind of immersed in libertarian thinking. I have a business degree. My undergrad is in economics. Like I just I think economically. But uh, when I think of how. What. Where do people think. It all comes from that that the federal government 
any government doesn't have anything it doesn't take from somebody else. So so is the idea that that the super, super rich people who have been gouging the people of Houston their entire lives have been just stealing their money and putting it in the banks that they're coming out. And that the federal government's going into their bank accounts and taking the money back and giving it to them in this time of need, like it was really just a savings account? Or do they not recognize that it's a zero-sum game with the governments? You, you, it, it, They can only spend money that's been created. And who creates it? The private sector. So why, you know what I mean? I just, I, I'm having a hard time understanding. It, it just feels to me like they think it's free money, but that, but it's a system that's set up for us to think that way. And it wasn't always like that. We did, we used to understand the realities of costs and damage and earnings and spending. I don't think they think about it economically at all, other than what you just said. It's free money. The government has all that they need that they can give us. It's like they think they have some unlimited well. I don't think people think that far that deeply about it. No. And, and what I'm saying is I, I, this has been. The, the fundamental problem with this, and it's continuing apace, is that we have really been transformed. It was intentional. You can read about it from 100 years ago. Uh, they, we have been transformed from thinking as an individualistic society, which in itself, I think, might have been groundbreaking, you know, a unprecedented, certainly groundbreaking, but that we have actually transformed to where we have no, we're just collectivists. We're just socialists. I mean, we simply can't conceive of, I mean, even the Republicans, they're not, they're not saying hello. You know, we have $20 trillion in debt. Like there, this doesn't make sense. You know, we have inflation that never ends. We've lost 95% of the value of the dollar. I mean, there's no, we're not, helping ourselves here. This is not a better society. I just had an image of Trump sitting next to a giant computer, a federal computer. He's in Texas and he's just hitting print, 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 and just money. is just of money. But we don't print money. We we have a debt-based money system. We have pri- the private banks who own the Fed lend the US government the inflationary money they ask for. So when there, when the money supply expanded by $4 trillion, that $4 trillion ended up as, started as debt on the books of the federal government. I mean, that's another thing people don't understand. If we just printed the money, I actually would have a little less of a problem with it. But we don't print the money. The, the money goes, these guys just create out of thin air. And... As soon as the federal government, they give it to the federal government, the government writes the debt on the books and puts the money into the bank. And then the bank lends out 10 times that and charges interest on the 10 times it. So the, it's just such a complete scam. Uh, it's staggering. And, and the fact, so now the news is turning to talking about tax reform. Uh, uh, I, I heard repeatedly on the news today, they said, everybody knows Cutting spending is uh is not isn't top of mind right now in the face of these floods. That's just inhumane. And that was coming out of the Trump camp. So you see that they're you know, they're all on the side. That that, in my opinion, is one of the very most important kind of meanings of Trump is that 
he's he's there's no one out there even paying lip service to the idea that we need to pay for what we're getting. Nobody ever talks about the debt anymore. I mean, it's $20 trillion from the richest society that ever existed. Why are we spending the money of people in the future? I mean, it just, it's, this is getting, it's insane. You take your 18 year old and what do you do? Here, honey, take a $100,000 loan out. Think about that. Try to think for yourself when there's a $100,000 loan hanging over your head. And when you're 18 years old? It's a moral hazard. Loan subsidies, it's a moral hazard. It puts people in a position of uh, of slavery. Yeah, it doesn't feel out of the ordinary to them, so there's no reason for them to like... But it wouldn't happen if it were private. See, it's again just like the flood insurance. It would not happen if it were private because a private entity would say, this 18-year-old isn't worth a crap, you know, that, that unless she's going to go into computer science, I'm not giving her money to learn English. She knows English. You throw a fit and she would sue you then. Yes. I actually went to law school with a lovely gal. I still keep in touch with every once in a while who sued Citibank for not giving credit cards to people with crappy majors. Really? Yes. And she won. (laughs) They were not allowed to discriminate on the basis of, of major. See, that's one of the downsides of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. People don't realize that was the slippery slope. They think Barry Goldwater, who was bad in some ways, many ways they say, but in some ways he wasn't. And one of the things they say was what he was so bad is because he objected to it, the Civil Rights Act as it was, but it was for that reason, because it opened the door to private property, uh, you know, no longer having strict respect for private property, which leads to like our immigration problems. You know, if you wanted to really protect your property, you would not be allowed to like ask the guys in Waco, you know, where they wanted to just have a compound with guns and the government burned it to the ground, basically killed everybody because you're not allowed to protect your own private property. Uh, But yeah, can the, oh, the other thing that made me crazy about the coverage. I was listening to Cavuto today and he had a guest, I believe it was Ken Langone. I think the guy's name was, was he possibly the Home Depot? Was, was Arthur Blank the Home Depot guy? Was his, I think Arthur Blank, Atlanta's own, was the Home Depot guy, but he must have had a, a, um, a partner. He did. He had a partner. Oh, was it Ken Langone? I don't have the name right now. I can check. Okay. So I think it's this guy. And uh, American businessman, best known organized, uh, best known for organized financing to the founders of the Home Depot. Okay. So this guy, Ken Langone, was on, uh, I think it was him, on Cavuto today. And he said, so they were saying how people were price gouging, that Best Buy sold a case of water for $43, something like that. And that, uh, and this guy said, well, if the price before the hurricane was X and the price after the hurricane is X plus anything, it's price gouging. And people who do that should be shot. Wow. Here's the thing. Why price gouging? I hate the word even because it's another situation where it's truly a moral hazard. This is what happened. So when I was at Rita, you know, I was waiting it out in, at when Hurricane Rita went through Houston 
All of the grocery stores were completely empty of inventory. So these people who were in no real danger cleaned out the shelves. So then later, you know, if something really bad had happened and I had needed something, I would not have been able to get it, even though I would have gladly paid $100 for a bottle of formula. But it was not available because they were selling it for a dollar the day before. So what happens is when things are bad and prices go through the roof, people don't take it if they don't really need it. And and they also, and people who have stuff, scarce stuff, withhold it for if it gets even more scarce and the price goes up even more. It's a way of regulating supply and demand in a time of great need and limited supply. Because they're not, they don't want to hold on to it forever. The people don't want to hold on to their goods forever. They want to sell it at the peak price. And the peak price is the place where demand most exceeds supply, where it's most valuable. And and what they look at is they say, okay, there are some people who could not afford to buy a bottle of water. But you can't always just think of the worst case scenario and... You're talking about people who have nothing. $43 for a case of water, I think most people could actually scrounge up $43 and water's all you really need. So uh, it's not always like these people, babies are starving to death because these people are so-called gouging prices. Pricing like that is a way of conserving resources. And uh, and these are just some ways the natural market mechanisms function. And the, this interference goes out of its way to stop those mechanisms. And that's when you have excesses. That's when you have crashes, booms and busts and all that. That's almost always government. The uh, system is overstressed and the federal government steps in. Yeah, they like the stress. Absolutely. They need the stress so that they have a reason to exist. Of course. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, this is great. This is just what they wanted. This is what they were asking for, planning for. They were so eager. They were so, I mean, they, they were like giddy, clapping their hands together when they were talking about this. Oh, Hurricane Harvey is almost here. Oh, yes, yes. Who was it watching the bombs, the Tomahawk missiles fall on Syria, where it's like those beautiful, beautiful bombs and gorgeous explosions? The con artist, on, uh, I think, is NBC. Not Brian Williams. Yeah, I think it was Brian Williams. He's talking about. Is he back? Yeah, he's back. He's got his own show, and people trust him. Crazy. (sighs) Another theme of the reporting that goes right along with what we're talking about is, you know, the whole idea is we need to just completely neutralize anybody who even thinks about. We need to purge the thought that it might not be climate control. After it first hit, they're going. The computer models were dead on accurate completely accurate they nailed it the computer models i heard that theme on like three or four different shows from three or four different broadcasters i'm going are you kidding me you're trying you're really trying to convince me that the computer models are now perfect so that's what's going to happen the next time there's a climate denier how can they even have been perfect because uh, unless the actual fundamental science has been discovered when i remember following it closely they always said you it's like it's like uh, Schrodinger's cat or whatever. You can't. It's chaos there. You can't tell which way a hurricane's going to break before twenty four hours. Like you just can't. It's not possible. There aren't any signs that will tell you. So how they could figure it out twenty four hours in advance? I guess just massive water. Maybe just the the size of the storm. 
Right. So they're just picking out one aspect of it to try and act like the computer models are correct. So the next time somebody says these are computer models you're relying on with this with this climate change argument, then the rebuttal can be this is a debunked argument you're making. Um, Hurricane Harvey proved that the computer models are accurate. Like we've we have all this body of evidence showing the accuracy of the computer models. But, you know, one in a hundred is like a stopped clock is exactly. right twice a day. My my phone says it's supposed to storm and rain all day. It only rained a little bit this morning, so the computer models have already failed again. Oh yeah, right. They can they can figure this out, but they can't figure it out. It's, it's insane. But the way they just kept emphasizing it was obviously in the talking point memo that they all got emphasized computer. Oh models. yes, yeah. Reminds me of Go the ahead. book you're reading. Oh yes. Yeah, I want I want you to help connect the dots between like what how. I'm always wondering, you can see they're doing stuff. You can see they're being told how to say stuff. You can see they're manipulating people. Uh, it's always hard for me to kind of make the connection between what they want to happen, how many people have to really be in on it, and how much they can just depend on tried and true methods of manipulating uh, other groups. And And I feel like almost everything we're seeing nowadays from protests to, to politicized weather r- relies on people taking the bait and actually acting out. And you were telling me something about how this is an ancient, you know, a, a fairly well-worn technique. Yeah, it's a Bolshevik technique. The book is called The Organizational Weapon, The Study of Bolshevik Strategy and Tactics. The reason I got this book is because I was doing research on understanding the Russian revolution and you know how it occurred, how they mobilized the groups of people to topple all the statues, to, to purge all the old symbols of the old regime and then replace them with symbols of the new regime so that they can then use those symbols to control people. I was researching stuff like that, and I stumbled upon this book, which is a RAND study. The documents they base it on are from communist international congresses and stuff like that. And I'm reading through this thing, and what this book basically is, it's like Saul Alinsky and Indivisible on steroids. This is where all of that stuff came from. This this book is about community organizing and how to use it as a weapon. In the combat party is what they call it. What the book talks about is people who are all into Marx and communism, that's an ideological appeal. And it's the appeal to to the struggle, to equality, to overcoming your oppressor and living in a utopia or whatever. But it's pure, it's ideological. So that's how they hook people. It's that ideological hook that helps mobilize the crowd. Lenin, on the other hand, took Marx's ideals and he doesn't care. You know, he doesn't, he didn't give a rat's ass about, you know, the ideological aspect of it. That was more of a limitation. He, He couldn't buy into that, but he could use that to mobilize the masses to further his cause. And the ultimate aim of the Bolsheviks was unlimited power concentrated in the hands of a small elite. Right. So the the Russian Revolution was, uh, I think it's in kind of deeper history circles that the Bolsheviks took over from the Mensheviks, and it was really a, they were agents of Western powers, that this went back to making sure, in part, this is a part of it, Russia, first of all, I think they wanted to neutralize the possibility of a truly organized, uh, productive regime controlling all that oil because Russia's big and oil was coming up and the Rockefellers did not want the czars 
autocracy, stuff like that, to have that. There was another layer of it where they wanted the Russians and the Germans to be so out of sync that they could never align, which would be the schism between Europe and Asia, you know, the Eurasian continent that would keep the Western powers, the sea powers relevant. So by making uh, Hitler and fascism completely the antithesis, uh, or at least just hating the communists, they could never really be expected to cooperate. But the Mensheviks may have been a like a grassroots kind of uprising, and that is the revolution that kind of overthrew the czarist regime in Russia, but it was quickly replaced by the Bolsheviks. And Lenin, there's a very, very sketchy story about Lenin, um, and there's one about Trotsky too, coming through the West and kind of being harbored and transported, even to the point where I think he comes through Germany on, on the on the um, dime of the Warburgs. So the Warburgs were in Germany and in Russia. If you if you dig deep, big banking family, and kind of put Lenin in there to direct that whole thing. And there's also another backstory that Marx was basically employed by quote, capitalists or industrialists to create an ideology of control, a way to control the masses, control the workers without them really realizing it. So a lot of the stuff that's going that went on over there, like you're talking about the Rand Corporation, the roots of these techniques, you know, I would I wonder if it's not so much the Rand Corporation analyzing it, but knowing full well where it came from, that they now it probably was created after that, but that that would have access to where that stuff uh, originated. And I think quite often, more often than you would think, like eugenics, you know, that stuff starts in the West and is, has been released into those places to mess them up. Yeah, well, th- this book is, it, it, basically the premise of this book is they're studying these tactics and they're writing about them for the purpose of being able to control society themselves. They want to be able to stop oh, you using Yeah, I, I actually wondered if, some of that, uh, the experimentation they did over there that they then used against us through our music and the cultural revolution and stuff in the sixties, that they were actually using those populations as, as experimentation, as petri dishes in a way that they couldn't get away with over here. There is no doubt they're using the techniques in this book right now, all the time. Indivisible is, is based on this. I mean, if this wasn't, if you didn't see Lenin's name and some of the old references, you'd think you were reading the Indivisible website when you're reading some of the, the way that they talk about this stuff. The purpose of this, these Bolshevik strategies and tactics using community organizing is total control of the indivisible, of the, I was about to say indivisible, of the, of the individual, total control of the new party member. And, let me draw a line that they draw in the book. 1935, the 7th Communist International Congress. The communists decided, they made an effort, they were going to change the way they approached spreading international communism. Prior to that, they used open communist appeals. They, they used very obvious communist slogans, very hardcore, the hardcore red. You know, you'd spot a communist a mile away, right? That wasn't working. So they changed their approach, and their approach there became ultimate deception. We are going to shed the colors of communism, drape ourselves in the language of democracy. We're going to appeal. We're still going to use these these Marxist appeals to equality, uh, pointing out the oppressor to all the – we're going to exploit the pain of people, but we're going to do it by creating front organizations, by 
co-opting already established organizations, preaching unity, preaching unity, using the language of democracy. That way we are cloaking ourselves behind that democratic language and carrying on our program that way. And that was from 1935 on. That was the program. And anybody who deviated from that is banished pretty much. You're not allowed. You're not, you're not with us because we have to, we can, we got to go on unrecognized. And th- that was interesting to me when I saw that because I, this stuck out in my mind. Bernays book, I think it was public opinion. He says almost as a throwaway line, he says, anyone who wants to protect democracy better learn how communist propaganda tactics work. Otherwise you don't have a chance. And then he just doesn't elaborate on it, which to me, it seems, <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's stuck in my mind and I'm reading this and I make sense now. You know, you completely shed everything communism and then you continue to carry on the program. And now, and, and the way that they do that, and you touched on this a second ago, is only the very few at the top, only the very few at the top know the real plan. They win over their cadres or not their cadres. They win over the elites through persuasion. They persuade them to agree with what they're doing. And then they create cadres of people. And this is what Indivisible is doing when they're training all these people. They train people using the Lenin ta- – Lenin has a playbook. They train them from the Lenin playbook on how to be a community organizer essentially, on how to spread the gospel. But these people actually are buying into it. They're, they're, they're being propagandized. They're being indoctrinated. They use that word a lot into this Lenin philosophy to fight for equality, to fight for this Marxist ideology, and they hook them because it's ideo- ideological, just like they're doing with Indivisible right now. It's They're hooking them through these emotional unity tactics, but the people who are actually controlling it, they don't care about that. They, they're only using these organizations that have pain right now that can be exploited, and that's, that's what they emphasize is Lenin, Lenin is going to use any of the available pain that he can use to unite the public right now, and then he's going to convince them to do his, his bidding for him, and yet none of them are actually going to know what his ultimate goal is, which is concentration of power into his hands. And that's what's going on right now too. And that is also – I think I told you this. That made me start to think about Putin. Him, As you talked a lot about maybe Putin being kind of in on what's going on, I was thinking about it. I was like, you know what? That would make perfect sense to me now because Putin's dad is identified as, as being the model communist. And during that time, if you're the model communist, you're indoctrinating mm-hmm. your child from the day he's born mm-hmm. into the model communist. And if their strategy at that point in time was ultimate deception, cloaking yourself under something else so you can carry on your program, Putin, who was in the KGB, I mean that makes perfect sense. Putin co-opt Russia essentially is is where that might lead to, like co-opt the new Russia, so to speak. Because the best way the best way to make people think that your movement is dead, to make people think that to, to stop people from looking yeah, in, fake your own death, right? Yeah, you fake your own death so that you can go on without people looking at you. Here's the problem with, or I shouldn't say the problem. This is a, a maybe it's a nicety. I don't know. Uh, because of that backstory with Bolshevism and Marx and all that, that basically communism is a capitalist plot, <laughs> you know, I should, I hate to use the word capitalist. I do not mean that. Um, I'm an anarcho capitalist. I, I believe in the power of, uh, you know, capitalism to me, true pure capitalism is just producing more than you need and reinvesting the surplus so that you can, have even more surplus later. That's capitalism, in my opinion. It should be fair and square. But these guys, these used fraud and um, 
force and every other thing to monopolize entire industries that, that had absolutely no reason to be a monopoly. But in this evolution of concentrated power, they use the communism as an ideology and the tactics and, and as a way to control Eurasia and all that kind of stuff. So, and even the red scare, the communist scare was a way to control us, to keep us involved in wars, to keep us spending all this defense money that we absolutely did not need to spend to get us used to debt, to promote a wartime economy long after the wars were over. So to talk about communism as a, as a kind of thing in itself and end in itself I I feel is a little dated in my in the way I think of how well I'm struggling to understand how how it really works. The the thing of this book is it's not that they were they didn't want to the ultimate Marx, Marxist communist world. That's not the goal. The goal is concentration of power into the hands of the elite. They're making it happen by convincing the people doing their bidding for them that they're going after the communist goal. So it is kind yeah, of and and it's not even possible. So like in my mind, the communist goal of like having no one own anything or lead anything doesn't make any sense. It just means that the person at the top exactly you know doesn't have a right to the bank account which you know some people think is an improvement but i just feel like uh yeah okay so uh, yeah so that actually dovetails perfectly with what i'm saying which is it was just another way to concentrate all the money and power at the top because what you're really doing is saying there's no private property but the person who controls everything is the guy at the top. And and that's, I think, why they say that Putin is so rich. They want to, like, imply that that's what's really going on. So with Putin, there's a lot of information and disinformation. And and for a brief time before RT went completely, like, blatant propaganda, which in itself is kind of suspicious to me, and the founder was kind of, and other people were murdered here, that kind of stuff is all weird to me, but it, Putin made sense. Putin's kind of on the other side of some is Putin seems to be pushing back. He acts like he pushes back on the money powers, acts like he pushes back on our expansionism in Syria and Ukraine and all that. But then he gives lip service to ISIS or validates Edward Snowden. And and there are lots of different ways to think of those things. I can think of it as these are limited hangouts and he's going to make the most of them. You put yourself out there, obviously makes you vulnerable. He's going to exploit it furthermore or or he takes it further and exploits it for himself. He uses ISIS. It seems to me that he carries on that deception for his own purposes, that that's why he's in Syria. Syria and Ukraine are the gas, are the, are the conduits for gas to get into Europe. You know, it's just all it is. It's so obvious. I I mean, that's what those critical junctures are all about is this competing Russia versus the West on getting gas into Europe, or at least who owns Europe that way. Uh, So even if both of them have enough gas, it's like preventing the other guy. And that kind of is what's beginning to make me think and something an Uber driver said to me, like an Armenian Uber driver, somebody, some, no, maybe he was, I think he was Armenian, but grew up in Lebanon. I don't know what that means, but, you know, I don't know how that's significant, but he said, you know, who's the most powerful in the whole world? Like, I don't know, the, you know, British, Zionists, the, the aliens, lizards, you know, I don't know who. Russia. I was like, okay. 
He said, no. He said, we used to fight. We were all in the army and the Russian guns worked. The American guns didn't. They, they don't open their books. It looks like they don't have this money. They don't have that money. They don't open their books. They don't have debt. They, they control all this oil, this content. They're just, a, they're just a sleeping bear. They're just there. They're just waiting and they can control. And so I started to, to incorporate, you know, that little nugget into my thinking. And when you look back at this, like McKinder doctrine and Zbigniew Brzezinski, where they talk about that the heartland, the earth mass, the land mass, Eurasia is the land mass and everything else is a island. When you think of it that way, that is the power and the island nations, the sea powers, the Anglo-American establishment has been trying to keep that at bay, keep it from uniting, keep it from dominating the world fully the whole time. And I, and I, I, I have to come down to what is probably a glaring reality, which is Putin knows that too. You know, he knows that's where the power is. It is a natural center of power. It's the center of gravity in the world. And maybe what he's doing is, is, you know, kind of martial arts, which is his thing, using, letting us, letting the West use its power against itself, biding his time, not because I think he wants to take over the world, but he, he's going to let them set their table of world power and just demonstrate that that the table itself is is the Eurasian landmass and that is that that is being going to be dominated by him you know that that really it's not that he's trying to get a seat at the table of world power it's that He's a, you know, that in the end, if he just gets up and shakes, you know, if Russia just gets up and shakes, all those pieces just fall off its back, you know, that it's not as important to them as it is to us. I'm just throwing it out there as a, as a, a way of thinking, you know, I'm not having concluded that, but it's just an idea, a little richer feeling of maybe how the dynamics are working, or maybe that it's very obvious to everybody what the truth is. And I just don't see it. Yeah. I, like I've been thinking about that in a number of different ways since I, started reading this as well there's there's so many so many ways that it could go with it because if 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 you're if he is if i'm going on the assumption that he is doing a linen type thing to gain some sort of world power then what what he's done is positioned himself you know counter to trump however as some sort of evil that brings the world's attention to international government that makes them want to shed the the nationalist borders and pursue these international goals and even though he's kind of at the center of the of the villainy or whatever if it is this whole thing where people are working on deals and stuff and there is some sort of war then you know after the war's over he just steps on over to the other side and takes his new position well the wars yeah the wars are a whole nother thing that's a way or you know that that it's not as for sure. It's not as simple as it looks. As far as winners and losers go, it's a good way to change the monetary system. It's a good way to usher in a new world order. It's a good way to change a fundamental way of people thinking. And most of all, it's a good way to murder hundreds of millions of people. And yeah. that's really important to them. That's anybody who wants to rule the world has got to kill a lot of people.
And I, and I almost wonder if, you know, cause I'm always kind of puzzled by this shift in how they arrange the economy. Like half the people don't work yet at the same time, they're ushering in, they're using government money, Department of Defense money and research money at universities, all the tech that you see, robots, Siri, driverless cars. This stuff is not free market research money. It's not money that is that is invested in response to severe labor shortages, which is what what that level of tech investment would really, in in, in the state of nature, it would come from insane labor shortages to justify that kind of money. So here they are making robots, making everything so that no human being needs to be involved in it, yet half the people are idle. So what what could their purpose possibly be? Well, I think they're going to get us to kill each other. <laughs> you know, I think they're going to get the bottom half to just kill each other and then they can live without them. I mean, I just cannot reconcile this feeling that they're trying to make everybody idle at the same time that they're introducing this uh, labor-saving tech, like what would be the purpose of any of it? And you wouldn't want a bunch of idle people unless they were truly, you know, on Soma or whatever the the uh, the drug is, you know, truly sedated, which they do that too. Facebook and Prozac is rather neutralizing legal pot or whatever, I don't know, so that they can, uh, you know, why would they, why would they want that? You know, why, why would they want that population of just idle, as Kissinger called them, useless eaters? They, I don't think they do. So they, and I think like, if you look at the Georgia Guidestones, they are planning on killing people. So, or I should say, the ideal certainly is a lot fewer people than we have. And so wars have that. So I, no matter who starts where, that's why I feel like they're, they're shutting down the borders. They want to be rebuild manufacturing. They want to do all this stuff. Not because even if Putin and Trump and the queen of England are all in it together to have this big war, even if they're all in it together, they don't want it to be an easy one. They want it to be a hard one. They want it to last. If if the real, you know, if what I think is true about war, they want it to kill people, it has to really last to really cause that kind of death. Pollution has to be a struggle, and it's going to have to have those consequences that you talked about also. But the struggle is how they continue to grow their group, according to this book anyway, is, is, is people have to be constantly involved in the struggle. This is ba- the, basically the plan for spreading this international Bolshevik communism, whatever you want to call it, is you hook them with a Marxist I- ideology, the, the, the struggle, equality, you got to overcome your oppressor, and uh, you, you promise them, you say with unity is going to come utopia, that type of thing. If we overcome this struggle, this constant struggle, we're going to get to that unify, and we're going to have utopia, and then you constantly involve them in political combat and activity. And that is protesting, that's demonstrations, that's local stuff. That any opportunity that they can find to engage their followers in some sort of political combat creates a strong psychological and emotional commitment to this movement that is pretty much unbreakable. If you can constantly keep them involved, it consumes their life. It's total control of the individual. And that's what what they're doing with Indivisible right now. The purpose isn't necessarily to spread the whole Indivisible ideology everywhere. 
that's part of it. But another part of it is to constantly involve these people in political combat so that they have this army of people that now or five years from now or 10 years from now, they can call to action. And it's just as militant as any government military is. They're going to want to do it on both sides, though, because they want to pit us against each other. So this neo-Nazi thing, I don't see how that, you know, Antifa and neo-Nazi are are just too extreme to be like the nuggets. It's this indivisible, I, I don't know, but I feel like they have to get the right to be just as, or, or this militarizing of the police is the proxy for the right. That if they can get it, the indivisible unity stuff, that what they actually might do is take this, this is their army, the indivisible army, they're self-righteous. They think violence is okay because bigotry is the one intolerable, and that's how the right is painted. And then instead of having the right come out in force against them, the right, and this is what's happening, gets behind the cops and sends the cops out and just mows those people down. And then you've already got the, the those people co-opted. The people who would have been the problem for the cops, the gun the gun owners, you know, the individualists have been neutralized on their own side with this confusion from populism, racism, all that stuff, uh, because they'll kill us. You know, I'm not I'm not like predicting. I'm not trying to scare people. I'm just saying if you want to take like what's I think pretty well, well established theory of population reduction as a goal they do it in two ways. They're going to do it externally in wars and internally in this domestic stuff. And I have to say, I wonder with this hurricane, they all talk about, you know, we've set up shelters, the shelters get overflowed, shelters aren't working, shelters are gross. I, I wonder if this is going to be just a little small story in the news, you know, expand the FEMA camp program because we're going to need a place to put people as uh hurricanes start emerging in Colorado, you know, tornadoes, all that kind of stuff. That's why this this hurricane's so fishy to me. It's just I don't want to go down there, but I just feel like it's going to open up. It just justifies. It's going it, to this is definitely going to justify FEMA camps because they have a problem with sheltering these people, right? They have a major problem with sheltering. There was some people who were on I told you Don Lemon's show the other night, uh, mm-hmm. which he's I just love his show. I know you do too. Oh my gosh. It's it I really feel like he he's mocking us by like I can't believe you're watching this. You're so stupid you're actually watching this. There's a lot of that going on out there in the world for me though. It's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe people take this seriously. He had a guest on. There was people calling in and you can prank these stations when there's an emergency. It's easier to get through because they're eager to have some sort of, you know, victim and they don't care if it's real or not just as long as it right. says what they want they sounds real somebody who called in whose name was isis i think that's what wrong. i think oh i actually know a girl whose name is isis poor thing yeah that's an unfortunate name or a great name depending on your perspective but it, <laughs> and it was a girl and her two friends and they just started bitching like he was like so donald was like so tell us how did how, how do you feel tell us what happened mm-hmm. they were like we were waiting out there for six hours. Nobody came and got us, and they just went off. And, and he was totally – I think he was genuinely not expecting this. They were in a center that was like a high school or something. They were complaining about the place because they weren't able to be – they couldn't go to the good you know, FEMA camp. So they were in like the, the bad FEMA camp that didn't have Wi-Fi. 
They're like, we are like FEMA uh, camps. They're not FEMA camps. They're shelters. I'm relating it to what you were saying. Is, is oh right, right, right. Okay, got it. They can't house them. So they, because they're like, we need to go somewhere else because we don't have Wi-Fi here. My my, <laughs> we don't have Wi-Fi. Has no data. Like she said that her welfare cell phone has no data. And then another one grabbed the mic and was like, I was in prison for ten years. I just got out. Now everything's. Good. It was just. It was total chaos. These women just like screaming. It, it seemed real. And you me. think it was real? The people seemed genuine to me. I don't know if CNN put them on because they were trying to cause some effect or if it, they just happened to get on. Because he did rush them off pretty quickly. It was a pretty funny interaction. I did see uh, – I saw the first Wall Street Journal that came out after the hurricane was like a soldier carrying a woman who appeared to be of Asian descent and her baby. He was like carrying her even though you could see that the water was below his knee. And she was wearing wellies. She was wearing knee-high – rubber boots and she was it was such a weird picture i was looking at it i was like is this picture here to show us that houston is multicultural you know and then so you know it's just a weird set it was obviously it was like not a real picture i I don't know everybody's probably seen that picture but if you look at the details you're like why is he carrying her and her baby because it's hard to carry a person no matter how small they are like why waste your energy get a sandbag he was only holding her momentarily while they snapped the photo yeah, it just made no sense, but it was like, it was so, it, it was a funny, it, you know, it just looked a little incongruous because when you think of Houston, you do not think of tiny Asian women, although there's plenty, it is a super diverse city. It's actually, I really like the, it's a very cosmopolitan city. I really enjoyed that after living in Dallas. I preferred Houston in part for that reason. But somebody sent me an article, you know, people put me on their email list that featured that picture. And it was like, um, uh, all the news is covering is that, uh, you know, multiculturalism and diversity in Houston is helping save people and all this stuff. So it was like an extreme uh, kind of alt-right thing oh, wow. that that picture triggered. And I I felt like, there, I thought the picture looked a little funny to me to start out with. And here it was, it immediately got picked up by some possibly disinformation, uh, source for the alt-right that, that took that picture and emphasized that interpretation. So when you're telling me stuff like this, I can't help but think that these are provocations, you know, at some level, yeah, I think some of them yeah, are. Yeah, but for, to produce it, you know, to really in the fine in the granular element like to produce it like that in real time might be a little tricky. Well, I think I think that both can be true. I think there's going to be yeah. provoke and there's going to be legitimate ones that come through. That's funny that everybody on all sides just instantly jumping on the chance to politicize this thing while also accusing the others of grossly politicizing it. But everybody on left and right is saying how this means we, this is no time to think about cutting spending. I mean, let me give you, I know we got to go soon. I want to give you two more uh, quick things that I've learned from this book that you might be aware. And one of them is just, I think, kind of validates a lot of things we've been talking about. I didn't realize this, but the first progressive party in the United States, 1948, that was a front organization created by communists. Time out. Progressives 
were around before 1948. Well, the first official progressive. Well, at least. Okay. And then uh, before that, it was the same industrialists who financed Marx because they like regulation to keep competition away. So you're saying like CPUSA, the Communist Party of the U.S., created this progressive. It, it was a front. It was a party that was a communist front. And that party is from the members who were younger back then. They then in turn moved up to Vermont to help with Bernie Sanders establish the Vermont Progressive Party. <laughs> did Bernie Sanders really establish the Vermont Progressive Party? Yeah, he did. I looked up the Vermont Progressive Party and the, I traced its roots back and its roots go back to the Progressive Party in this book, which like this here says the utility of this Communist backbone for the front organization was evident in the United States during the presidential election campaign of 1948, and they're using it as an example of how communists can put a, politi put a politician into a powerful position without that politician knowing that he's surrounded by communists and then neutralizing that politician. Oh, well, yeah, that's the classic thing. This, If you haven't read, I am certain you will love it. I mean, if you really want to uh embrace the communist dialectic there's a book called witness by whitaker chambers who was a fantastic writer i usually don't say that about journalists but he was a great writer and he was a communist who turned and was the witness so the book is called witness against alger hiss who by the way alger hiss who was convicted he was convicted based on this testimony as a communist in the State Department, so it's basically what Manchurian Candidate is really about, that whole thing. Uh, he was the one who did, who launched with a meeting in San Francisco, the United Nations, Alger Hiss. So the United Nations is a communist plot. Now, you know and, where he moved after he got out of jail, right? Uh, Vermont? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but the, the deeper thing is that when they talk about communists in the State Department, what they're really talking about are these one worlders, the world government guys. Not they're not really Russian spies so much as even Russian spies probably didn't even know that ultimately they were working towards you know this Rockefeller ideal of a, a world government. Yeah, that's what they talk about in this book. Yeah, but this book Witness by Whitaker Chambers is a fantastic page turner. So is this a novel? It's no, it's a book he wrote about his experience, but he's such a fantastic writer that it's just a great page turner. And it talks all about his work with the communists in the United States. So he was a member of the Communist Party in the United States, and it was later. So that's illegal to work as an agent of a foreign government is illegal. So the Communist Party in the United States was supposed to be independent of Russia. But when it became clear that Russia was actually behind these parties, like the Progressive Party, if that's what you're saying, CPUSA, that's when it was okay to do the House Un-American Activities Committee because it was un-American activities. Communism, if it were grassroots, I don't think they would have been allowed to suppress it. But that it was a front for Russian communism is what gave, I think Nixon ran that, what gave them the moral authority to actually interrogate people about their political affiliations and blackball them and all that kind of stuff. So it goes, it's, uh, it's quite of an interesting 
you know, layered story. And I highly recommend to start with witness. That's interesting because this also- and Manchurian candidate. Oh my gosh. We should, we have to make sure these are on our book list on the, on our this, this website this with what they decided at the 1935 international communist Congress. And that's if we're going to shed our communist colors and the unconstitutional, what's it called? The un-American um, activities committee. Yeah. The, that old uh, witch hunt, so to speak, whatever you want to call it, that's just another way of making it seem like communism is dead. If we put Alger Hess, this guy up in, in, high, in a high place, if we sacrifice him or he sacrifices himself, we give the appearance that, we have, that we're done. And then he goes and moves to Vermont with all the other secret communists after, and they continue to carry on their activities as social democrats. Well, that is interesting. And I have to say that kind of expose that Whitaker Chambers wrote, you know, after I read it when I was a little bit younger, but as my skepticism, uh, you know, evolves, I start to wonder about a guy like that. He works for time. This was quite public. He won, you know, you have to wonder if there is an element of disinfo in there. Yeah. I think we're just so surrounded by disinfo. Like trying we to- are definitely surrounded by disinfo. That's the whole thing. That's the only thing that makes me think there's hope for us is that they care so much about the information. They wouldn't work so hard to confuse us if us being clear thinking was not such a threat to them. And I would like to end on that. That's a great place to end. Fantastic. Thank you very much. This concludes the Propaganda Report. And uh, until next time, this is Monica Perez with Brad Binkley, and uh, see you later. See you later.